0: Uh, a night of midterms as well as the big Louisville game, which is awesome. Um, I just actually just had someone text me like 45 minutes ago to see if I wanted to go. And so I'm going to go later tonight. <laughs> Score. Um, <laughs> uh, but if you don't know, um, my name is Simon Stokes, and this is RUF. Uh, we're a Christian community on campus that wants to love this place and glorify God. So we love one another. Um, and it's, I want to say especially welcome if you're here for the first time tonight. Um, or if you brought someone for the first time tonight, I want to say thank you um, for coming, especially in the midst of this very busy, uh, busy season of the year. So let me pray for us, and we'll get started. Um, Father, you are so gracious to bring us here tonight, um, Lord, to guide us um, in your word and your truth, and Lord, we pray that you would help us to know and see and understand and rest in the love of Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to know him in um, his beauty and his truth and his goodness. Help us to rest our restless hearts in him tonight. In your name we pray, amen. Um, So a few years ago, I think it's the first semester I was actually a campus minister here. I remember being a really warm kind of September day, sitting in the pit with a young man who was a senior about to graduate from Carolina, and he'd grown up, homeschooled in a Christian, very conservative family, and when he arrived on campus nearly four years previously, he'd immediately gotten involved in RUF. And now as a senior, as I was sitting there talking to him, I could tell that his you know, kind of Christian discipleship was not where I would have expected it to be. Uh, he didn't believe in justification by faith, uh, trusting Jesus uh, with your sins and ex- uh, God accepting you based on that. He didn't believe in the Bible as a thing that had any kind of authority or truth in his life. Uh, he didn't believe in miracles or even really God at all, except in these kind of vague sort of grandfather in the sky terms. And as I was sitting there talking to him, he said, you know, there's a big part of this campus that's waiting for Christianity to go away so the rest of us can kind of roll up our sleeves and get down to the hard work of making the world a better place. Like, we are just so tired of the intolerance and the divisiveness of religious people like you all. And he had this deep sense that religious people, especially religious Christians, were kind of mean-spirited, were very intolerant, that religion was a very divisive thing. I mean, the funny thing was that, you know, some of his best friends were actually deeply committed Christians, Um, but, you know, don't worry about that. Uh, But I was not only shocked at his level of involvement in RUF, um, but I was not shocked, though, at his sentiment that he spoke about. Um, I don't know how often you've said it yourself, or if you've heard it said by someone else, or you just, like, felt the sentiment, but there's a general sense in our culture that I think comes up fairly often of kind of saying, isn't religion and religious people inherently intolerant and self-righteous? You know, I want to be the first to admit that religious people, and even some Christians, can be extraordinarily intolerant and self-righteous. There's just no way to, to deal with a 2,000-year religion and not see some of those people there. But mo- and most of Jesus' confrontations in the Gospels are not with you know, atheist or non-religious people, but are actually with the most religious people of his day, the Pharisees. And I have certainly been self-righteous at times myself. It's just so easy to do, isn't it? I mean, we can be self-righteous about religious stuff, reading, not reading the Bible, praying or not praying, going to church, not going to church. We can be self-righteous about social stuff. Are these people wild, funny, cool, loud? Are they thoughtful, calm, engaged with big ideas? We can be self-righteous about work. Like, it's the mark of whether you're in or out. If you're disciplined, high-achieving, getting big things done, making good grades... Or is the mark that you're in that you're skating by, having fun, clicking with lots of different kinds of people, making the rounds and some good networks? I mean, all these are things that we can be self-righteous about. It's more than just religious stuff. It's saying that this thing, this attitude, this way of doing stuff that I'm doing is what gets me in and gets other people in too. And there's one thing that kills community and poisons friendships. It's self-righteousness. But that's not the way that God's kingdom is supposed to feel or be. And that's not the way to get into God's kingdom or get in with God. So I've got two points to make tonight. i want to ask, what does it feel like to be self-righteous? And what does it feel like to receive grace? What does it feel like to be self-righteous? And what does it feel like to receive grace? So what does it feel like to be self-righteous? First of all, look at the laborers here. Uh, These sorts of day laborers generally have very little skills or abilities. If they were skilled people, they'd be craftspeople, or they'd work in some sort of big house or palace or mansion. Uh, But these are guys that you would go to the marketplace each day, and you'd hire them to do odd jobs around your house or your vineyard. Like dig a ditch, harvest the grapes, like things I don't normally need done, and I just need a little bit of extra manpower today. They live on a denarius a day, which is... Basically, subsistence wages—just uh, enough for you to eat and get like a little bit of bread on the side for your family. So none of these guys are like you know high achievers, super skilled professionals, um, any of that kind of stuff. But their attitude is still marked by self righteousness. I mean, the uh, owner of the vineyard goes out and he hires guys at six a.m. That's the first hour. Nine a.m., noon, three p.m. 5 p.m., which is the very last hour of the working day, quitting time was 6 p.m. It's the coolest part of the day. And what happens when they get to the end of the day and they want to get paid? I mean, it says here, When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers, pay them the wages, beginning with the last, but the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled At the master of the house saying, These last worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us who've borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. Do you know what it feels like to be self righteous? It feels like grumbling against God and other people. It feels like murmuring under your breath and feeling angry and let down when nothing necessarily bad has happened to you in this. It's not because God hasn't given you good things, it's just not all the good things that you thought you'd have. It feels like that even though you're getting good things, you're mad because so are the people that you feel like shouldn't be. Like it's like your buddy who went to the party school and they're like skating through life and having a good time in college while you're struggling at UNC in midterms and it's God's fault that you're here and they're there. It's like your friend who's much better at sports than you and he just seems to automatically be really, really good at sports and no matter how much you practice, it's not enough. It's like your sister who to stay thin and eat whatever she wants, but you can't bear to weigh yourself on a scale. And it's God's fault for making you this way. Like, Don't worry about the fact that most of us are relatively healthy and almost all of our problems are first world problems, like struggling to connect with Wi-Fi uh, or cracking your iPhone screen. Right? <laughs> There's a part of us that gets angry at God because he's so generous with the things that are his, especially in regards to people that we don't think he should be as generous with. Like some of us rebel against God because he can love and accept and count as being as worthy as us people who we don't feel like are as moral or as kind or as disciplined as we are. I mean, just think about the divisiveness here, the self-righteousness that kind of leads in this divisiveness, that there's a line right in between these guys of the hard workers and the not-so-hard workers, like the guys who worked all day and the guys who really were just kind of a cleanup crew who barely broke a sweat. Like There are people who are in and there are people who are out. And what the guys who are working hard are mad about is the guys who didn't work as hard get just as much as they did. That really self-righteousness comes because of our desire to have some kind of ultimate in that other people don't have. And what's so scary about gospel righteousness is it takes the power to be in or out out of our hands and puts it into God's hands. Like, if you're someone who has to feel like you've got to get a grip on how people see you, view you, approve or disapprove of you, believing that God's love is a gift that you could never earn, but is simply given because of who He is, will be the hardest thing you've ever done. It will take a supernatural effort on God's part to make it a reality for you. I mean, for everybody it's difficult. But for someone whose identity is wrapped up in hitting the right metrics and getting the right kind of approval, God's free, unmerited grace, is just going to turn your life upside down. Because we want to make God's kingdom a transactional place. I mean, this whole parable is Jesus describing what God's kingdom is like, right? And we want to make it transactional. But in reality, it is relational. That these guys are sort of getting paid for their labor, but really they're getting paid because they met the freest, most generous person ever. Like, do you know where I think this really gets us? I think it gets us in our tendency to divide ourselves. There are some of us who have a tendency to say things like, you know, I love RUF and the sense of community that RUF provides. The things it's doing on campus are great. But my people, my tribe, my real fellowship and friendship, it's not RUF, it's this other group over here. However deeply invested in RUF I might be, my real people will always be somewhere out there. And that's you, I just want to ask, like, when are you going to see that God's grace levels the field? That there aren't cool people out there that, you know, are your people, or smart people, or dumb people. But there are people that God has been gracious to. And if God has been gracious to you, then these are your people. Because RUF is a community built on God's grace. And when RUF feels like a safe haven in a heartless world, it's because it's living according to God's grace, And when it doesn't feel that way, it's because we're betraying the thing that most makes Ruf Ruf. Because self righteousness is just really natural for us. Um, Have you heard of Brene Brown? Do you know her at all? Uh, TED Talk with like twenty five million views on it or something, and it's all about shame and dealing with shame. And during that talk, she alludes to her own story with shame and how she kind of been this very put together by the book researcher. Was a tenured professor at the University of Houston, doing really good work and you know, very much in control of her life. Uh, but I, I heard another interview with her later on um, where she talked about kind of more about what that was about. And she said that she was fine until she started to really delve into her own stuff, like her own shame, and she has this huge breakdown. And in the breakdown, she hit on the fact that she wasn't really in control of her life or in control of the way that people could see her. And for someone who's trying to dig into people's stuff and see them honestly, she wasn't really that honest with herself because she was afraid of what she would see. So she did what any smart researcher would do. She did some research on midlife crises. She read a bunch of books. And they all said, you know, in case of crisis, go back to church. Like, search for this bigger, deeper meaning than yourself. And Brene said that her plan was that she would just replace research with church. Like, that, that would kind of be her switch and so after having a very long haste with Christianity, Brene started going back to church. And she said, you know, it was against all the things you're supposed to do as a respected professor. You know, the church had Christ in the name. You had to dress up. There were people there that she knew. Uh, but she stuck around and hugged in there. And eventually she got asked to leave Vacation Bible School for some kids. And lo and behold, what did she do but this parable? She did this parable. And she said that she did it because it was the parable that she most disliked because it was so hard for her to deal with. And uh, what she did was she brought the kids in, and she brought in Monopoly money, and she paid the kids for jumping jacks and Monopoly money. So she would start one group of kids jumping. She said, if you ju- do the jumping jacks now for the next five minutes, I'll give you this Monopoly money. And so they, they start, like, jumping jacks for, like, five minutes. And halfway through, like, two and a half minutes in, she brings in the second crop of kids, and they're doing the jumping jacks. And then with ten seconds left, she brings the last crop of kids, and they do jumping jacks for, like, ten seconds. And so, you know what she does, right? Like, she takes the money and she goes through and she pays each of the kids, all the kids, $500 of Monopoly money for the jumping jacks. And as she starts going to the line and hand out the $500 bills, the kids go nuts. Like, they're so angry. They're like, uh uh-uh, uh, this is not fair. This is not fair. And she's like, I know it's not fair. <laughs> and the other VBS worker in the room was like, This is where you tell them it's about being fair. And Brene is like, it's not about being fair, right? And she is totally sucked back into this parable. Like, how do you think this works? They say God is like this. She ended up saying that the parable helped her to deal with her own shame sometimes. Because when she would do something that she wasn't proud of, or she would respond in a way that she knew just wasn't who she really was, she could say to herself, you know, you get the $500 Monopoly money too. Like, you get the denarius a day. Like, you didn't work that hard. You failed, and here you are with the $500 in your hand. Well, that's a hard concept. That's not attractive in a world that's a meritocracy. But I think that's what it feels like to receive grace. It feels like saying, you know, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. That the kingdom of heaven is like meeting this wildly, generous, eccentric guy who completely flips your expectations of how much each person receives. And the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. That the people at the back of the line get exactly what the people at the front of the line get. God's free, unmerited love. Like, Be a hard worker who shows up early and stays late and keeps your nose clean. Or be a lazy worker who shows up late and isn't that good. But God's love for you is God's love. Because it's not transactional. It's relational. See, we think God is like us. Someone who strikes hard bargains. Like, put in your work. I'll give you something good at the end. If you don't, I'll give you something bad. But God isn't like us. Some of you are here probably thinking, you know, the last thing I need to hear again is a sermon about God's grace. Like, I've heard that a million times. If there's one thing that I understand about Christianity, it's grace, right? Like, I've heard it. Y'all, if that's you, listen to what I'm saying. You are the very person that is in the most danger of becoming divisive joyless, arrogant. The whole of the Christian life is understanding God's grace. It's not like that's the thing you start with and then you build up from there. As though there's just kind of this foundation of a building. But God's grace is the building of the Christian life. Do you know what it means to be made right in God's sight? What people have called justification. I'm going to give you a boring definition for it. I'm going to blow your mind. Justification is an act of God's free grace where he pardons all of our sins, not some, not everything up until you become a Christian and then you're kind of on your own to make up the difference, but all the sins, past, present, and future, and accepts us as righteous in his sight because of the righteousness given to us by Jesus. That's how you get in. That's justification. Okay, but how do you grow and bear fruit and become more like Jesus? Like what people call sanctification. The process of becoming holy. Another boring definition for you. Sanctification is the work of God's, wait for it, free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole person after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die to sin and live to God. You begin with grace and you persevere with grace. There is no other option but grace. Like, this is the whole of the deal. Non-gospel says, you know what, you need to love people, and you need to love God, and if you do, God will love you and be good to you. And if you don't, you're a terrible person, and he's going to squash you in the end. Like, that's karma. Like, oops, I got into a car accident, karma. Oops, you know, I failed this test, karma. I must not have been loving enough. But the gospel says, in this is love. Not that we love God, but he loved us and sent his son to be the satisfaction for our sins. The gospel says you are a sinner and you need grace. That you are not the hard worker who's here getting stuff done. But we're the lazy people, end-of-the-day workers. And if that's true, then there's no room to look down on people because you're not in because you got it. You're in because God is merciful and just loves to give good things to sinners. Things that we don't deserve. I mean, if you throw out the idea of grace, you'll always be the one deciding who to love, how to love, why to love. But the love that's based on the extra mile, that will go the extra mile, is based on the gospel. It's only in the gospel that God says, love your neighbor, bless those who curse you, pray for your enemies, don't judge people based on their work or their race. Why? Because Jesus didn't do that for us. Like, we are so different from God. But He came and He worked on our behalf. I mean, I'm a history nerd, so take this example from history. One of the weird things about history is that Christianity started to grow in the ancient world among the Greeks and the Romans, and they appeared totally inclusive. Like, you've got your God, I've got my God, really they're all the same, and as long as everybody pays their taxes, like, we're one big happy family. But then Christians came in and said, you know, there's only one true God, and Jesus is Lord. They made a very exclusive kind of claim. But the Christians were the most inclusive because of their exclusivity. The Romans didn't mix rich and poor people. Like the rich were there because they deserved it and they had a good family and the poor people were there at the bottom because they deserved it and they didn't have a good family, didn't work hard. Christians mixed them. The Jews didn't mix the races. You know, if you were Jewish, that was awesome and that was God's good election to you. And if you weren't, too bad, you were not one of the chosen people. But think think about this for Christianity. If Jesus is more than just a good guy, if he's God, and the way you get in with him is not through your race or how much money you have, or how smart you are, or how hard-working you are, or how moral you are, but because of his grace towards you, because he's looked at you and had mercy. Then what happens with all the distinctions caused by race, or class, or education, or moral one upsmanship? They disappear. Because in Jesus, ultimate reality has become visible, and it's a man on a cross loving people who didn't love him, reconciling people to himself who were his enemies. Like, if you think Jesus is just a great guy, but he's, if you think that Jesus isn't just a great guy, but that he's God, that when you take that into the heart of your life, how can you be divisive? Like how can you grumble that some other type of person who's different from you is here? Like you can't. Lots of modern skeptics have said, isn't Christianity just another religion that makes people more intolerant and less inclusive? you everybody has a set of exclusive beliefs. That's inescapable. There's no view from nowhere. There's always a story that guides how you live in the world. But the question is, which set of exclusive beliefs? Which story will lead to a truly loving, truly inclusive, truly just community of people? Gospel Christianity should be the most inclusive thing because it's centered on Jesus and his grace. That he serves God on our behalf, not one day, but all of his days on earth. Every minute of every hour is glad, full-hearted service that's given to God the Father, not for him, but for you. And ultimately it cost him his own life. And he gives it gladly for you. That his love given to people freely at no cost to you and every cost to himself is the true common denominator between different people that draws them together. God's love poured out for you on a cross. Not Christian lingo, or whether you cuss or you don't cuss, or you drink or you don't drink, or if you're a virgin or not a virgin, but Christ's death for you on a cross. Look, you'll take moralistic religion into your life, whatever it may look like, and you'll feel superior to all those terrible secularists and those half-hearted religious people. Take secularism into your life, and you'll feel superior to those stupid, naive religious people. But take God hung upon a cross for you into your life, and you'll be humbled, and you'll serve the people who don't love you, and you'll care for people who you know, may not like you, and you'll break down walls, and you will overcome divisiveness and barriers because that's what God has done for you. Read any biography about any decent missionary, and you'll see the motivation for mission was the fact that they could not get over God's pure, undeserved love. You want to talk about worship? Worship is a response to God's love, and God graciously receives it because of Christ's work on our behalf. And the quickest way to receive the seed of the gospel and to walk away is to say, I think I'm over grace. And that can even be good things, like missions, worship, community, caring for the poor. But if it's not motivated and continually empowered by God's grace, then ultimately it will choke you out. So how much do you make of God's gift of grace? Of the fact that you're the the last worker, and God loves you and has given you everything in Jesus. Because if what Jesus is saying is true here, then you get the outside wage that you didn't deserve. Like if you take a step back and look at the story the gospel is telling, then you see that the son became a laborer so the laborers could become sons and daughters. That You get exactly what he deserves. All the fruit of God's labor is given to you by faith. And so I want to end with this. Um, Brennan Manning is the guy who wrote the book uh, that we're reading in our mentorship program, Abba's Child. Uh, he's the first person I've heard uh, use this. But he said, you know, if you read the gospel of John... The Apostle John is the guy who wrote this thing, I and mean, he must be able to say that. But he always refers to himself in the third person. He never says, "You know, I'm John, the Apostle who planted a bunch of churches and hung out with Jesus for three years and wrote some books of the Bible." And you know, luckily, signed some miracles. He never describes himself by all the good stuff he's done. And he also never denies that he ran when Jesus was arrested. He doesn't describe himself by a sin either. Do you know how John describes himself throughout the gospel? That this is written by the one whom Jesus loves. That I am the one whom Jesus loves over and over and over again. That's true for you if you're a Christian. That The thing that is most defining of your life is that you are the one whom Jesus loves. Not only the good stuff you've done and how hard of a work you are. Not all the bad stuff you've done and all the things you would never Instagram in your life that happen but that you are the one whom Jesus loves. What would it mean for you if you saw yourself as the one whom Jesus loved? Not as a sum of your toil or your accomplishment or your failure, but just as God's child is the one whom Jesus loved. That's my offer for you tonight. That's my hope for you tonight that you'd see yourself in that way. Let me pray for us. Father, uh, <laughs> thank you that you make us people whom you love at no cost to ourselves, at every cost to you. Help us to know that love, to rest in that love, to hope in that love, Lord, to share that love with the people around us. Um, Lord, in a world with so many barriers, with so much divisiveness, um, with people who are running from one spectrum to the other side and talking past other folks, folks, um, Lord, people who are afraid of one another when you know, sometimes they should be and sometimes they shouldn't be. Lord, help us to be people who know your love and are secure enough in your love to step over those barriers, to break down those barriers, to love those barriers into dust. Lord, help us to love people, to care for people, because we know how much you've loved us first. In your name we pray. Amen.